Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters. For this week, ending Friday the 9th of December, we're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 till 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. This week, our second last podcast of the year, Bobby makes a big announcement and Adelaide is calling. And so she tells us with a heavy heart that she will not be continuing on Breakfasters next year. And to pay tribute to Bobby, Casey Bonetto also came in to talk about a swinging Bella Christmas and also pay a musical tribute. I went to a fate for the first time in about 25 years and we talked kitchen gadgets with Michael Harden. Bobby gets into strife shopping with her mum and we speak with Australian literary icon Don Watson about his new book, The Passion of Private White. Melbourne's own Triple R. Uh, so Abby and I celebrated our five-year anniversary recently. Happy anniversary. Thank you. Although we did get married in January, so really our anniversary will be one year in January. Because we had this conversation when I... We have. Yeah. So do you, are you, who's more pro celebrating your dating anniversary, you or Abby? No, I think we just celebrated it because it was five years. So we were both up uh-huh. for it and now we're like, okay, now that's the last one and this date... We'll always go with our January nice. date from now on, moving forward. Phase it out. Yeah. Phasing it out, <laughs> I think so. So we're going to have very close anniversaries from November yeah. to, to January. Um, can't tell you the exact date. No, 8th <laughs> of Jan, I'm all good. Um, one of the things when, because Abby's from Adelaide and I'm obviously from Melbourne, when we first started dating we were like, okay, well, one of us is going to have to make the move. Who's, who's going to make the move? And we're trying to go through pros and cons of living in Adelaide or living in Melbourne. And I, I've spoken about this too, but one of my mates, when she and her partner were having kids, to decide whose last name they did rock, paper, scissors. And I think important decisions should go down to rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> <laughs> so, I uh, look, I put my case forward for, uh, for Melbourne and it was neck and neck and Ab- Abby was doing it for Adelaide. But ultimately, uh, my mum ended up getting sick and she passed away. So I won uh, and Abby came to Melbourne. Congratulations. Interesting. <laughs> what, what you, if someone just tuned in. What a heroic My victory. mum got sick and passed away, so I won. It's a wonderful quote. <laughs> so Abby uh, moved from Adelaide to Melbourne so that I could be close to my family, uh, which was you really, really lovely. You really snookered her, didn't oh, you? Oh, I did. I just, I mean, mum actually lives in country Victoria. She's... <laughs> Teamwork. <laughs> Witness protection. Uh, but we did say um, after after two or three years that we would move to Adelaide. Uh, and it has been four years, so I've been pushing it out. Um, but we have decided that we're going to be moving to Adelaide at the start of next year. Mm. So this doesn't have a funny punchline, although there are a couple of funny bits in there. That were a bit dark, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess I'm just letting everyone know that I will be finishing up with the Breakfasters uh, in a couple of weeks at the end of the year mm. and and then moving to Adelaide to live my life over there with Abby and be closer to her family, like I said. We were we were going to be doing the move over here or she was coming over here for two or three years and I, I managed to push that out because I got this gig, which mm. has just been a dream come true. Like I, I've absolutely loved this, you know, working in stand-up comedy and, and doing so many other jobs and just part-time doing my passion of performing and hosting and, and, you know, getting bits here and there. But to be able to have this every day, uh, yeah, I I honestly just can't say how appreciative and grateful I am. And I've loved 
every minute of it, like even getting getting up early, getting my routine, having my naps, uh, but coming in and doing this show with you guys and, you know, Smithy at the end of last year as well. I, I hadn't met her before coming on air, but, you know, she, I loved working with Smithy. I've loved working with you guys. Uh, and, it, you know, it's going to be really sad. I know the OB is coming up, the outdoor broadcast in a couple of weeks, um, which is going to be at the Corner Hotel and Vicar and Linda are going to be performing, which mm. was announced on the website, which is very exciting. So, um, yeah, I am excited for a new adventure. I haven't had one in a while, um, but I'm also very sad and, yeah, it, it, it's, it's going to be really hard to leave here. I've, I've loved being a breakfaster over the last year and a half and, and prior to that being a funny bugger and, and prior to that, you know, coming on and, and talking about my show on the breakfasters with Phoebe Squared. You know, mm. it, it's, it, it's been a, a big part of my life for a long time and I just feel so privileged to have been able to sit in this spot for the last 18 months. Uh, but, yeah, I, I'm going to miss it and I'm going to miss... Yeah, I'm just going to miss everything about it. And I, do, I want to say a big thank you to uh, to program manager uh, Beck Hornsby, who's been amazing ever since I was a, a funny bugger coming on here, um, and our producer, of course, Elizabeth as well, and all of Triple R, who have been amazing, um, getting to meet the broadcasters at staff parties mm-hmm. uh, and during meetings and, and all of that. Um, I, I'm going to miss every bloody bit of this place. Mm-hmm. I, I really oh, am. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. It's an epic decision. And, well, your future life sounds idyllic (laughs) and it's well-deserved. And, yeah, certainly, and we've got two weeks of celebrations culminating in the outside broadcast. That's true, yeah, luckily. Which is going to be so much fun uh, to send you off. But, yeah, such a a rock to have you uh, here and you always have our backs and it's such a privilege. And as soon as you came on as a Friday funny bugger, you were just so funny uh, on over at a time when we were conducting a lot of the show over Skype or whatever, yeah. which is not easy to do. And the fact that you were just so uh, professional and witty and generous and you've just been an absolute delight to uh, sit beside. Yeah, a oh, very, very you. dedicated member as well. I think it's, you know, this this whole job relies on having like a steady team and if that doesn't work then the show wouldn't wouldn't last and wouldn't have people listening to it and subscribing to it and you're obviously 33% of that um, at, at, at least, you know, and it's been such a, yeah, I think it's going to be it's going to be really sad to see you go but it's I'm very grateful to have had this year with you as well and it's been really fun and, yeah, some, so it's, but it's good, you know, good on Abby as well for, for sacrificing that for that yeah. time and winning this Rock, Paper, Scissors <laughs> competition. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, I'm glad we've got, we've got two weeks now to kind of yeah. reflect and celebrate and commiserate and then have a big big celebration on the final on Friday. How does it 16th. feel having said it versus the anticipation of announcing? It's funny actually. I, I was I was okay half an hour ago, but then as soon as it was like I had thirty seconds to go, my heart started racing. It was like, oh shit, mm. this is actually it just makes it more real, mm. you know? When when no one knows about it, then it may or may not happen. <laughs> yeah. So I think Abby's rap that I've said it live on air, it's totally. happening. Totally. You sit it's on these things for so long before you get to announce them. So yeah. I imagine there's a bit of, well, I was going to, a bit of relief, but maybe it's an anticlimax. Like, I've got no more news. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's that's all I and, got. And um, your mother's got in touch, say, saying <laughs> she'll miss you. But <laughs> she understands. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> that's right. Triple R. K 
Casey Bonetto is a Helpman Award-winning writer, musician, composer and broadcaster whose smash hit Keating the Musical about Australia's 24th PM continues implausibly to be staged years after taking out Most Outstanding Show at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. The Spicks and Specs regular and former musical director in Circus Oz is also founder and host of Swingin' Bella Christmas, which returns this year to the Brunswick Ballroom. And to tell us about it, the Santa of Superfluity on Triple R mm. joins us now. Casey, welcome back to Breakfasters. Thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you, everyone. Yeah. And what, what a sweet introduction to and, and only a few possibly uh, uh, fanciful things in there. Oh. No, no, no. It, it, was all, it, it all tracked correctly, I think, but uh, as, as it's all read but out in a row like that, I go, oh, that seems like a lot of work. Yes, your self-deprecation <laughs> bristles. Yes. Uh, now, we're back. We're back and we're doing it. Uh, what, can you introduce Swing and Bella Christmas to the, the uninitiated? Absolutely. Well, it began life as... Um, a very Bella Christmas as the Christmas event at the Bella Union, which was the venue uh, upstairs of Trades Hall that my partner Catherine ran from 2007 to 2017. Uh, And so in 2007, we just started doing a very Bella Christmas, which was sort of like just grabbing Christmas carols and uh, sort of doing awful Frankenstein-y things to them, you know, (laughs) whether it be... um, I mean, the, one of the ones that survived for a long time is just taking Deck the Halls and doing it like... Um, uh, deck the Halls with boughs of holly Fa-la-la-la-la, la-la-la, la is the season. And, you know... And, pokes, eh? Yeah, and an entire audience going, Fa-la-la-la-la, la-la-la, la um, and, you know, doing stupid things, having, having sort of good fun with carols and, uh, and, and trying to re-engineer them. And then, as it went along, we started going, oh, well, we need an intro song. You know, we need a, hey, welcome to Swing and Bella Christmas. Oh, then we should have another song. Then we should... And bit by bit, the first set of the two sets got taken over by um, sort of Christmas originals. And now it really is all Christmas originals and the second half is all carols. Uh, and then it became a swing in Bella Christmas in about 2012. I think we went. Let's let's have horns. Yeah, we need a we need a little mini horn section. We need to be, um, you know, having good fun and, and getting that warm Christmas rosy glow on. Yeah, mm. have you noticed different themes emerge over the years in your writing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you you really do start to trawl a little bit and go, what what haven't we covered? Hang on. How many do we have about gift giving? Okay, there's quite a few over the years. You know, how many do we have about Santa doing different things? And, and, you know, okay, how many about Jesus? How how much do we want to do ones about Jesus? You know, in in terms of uh, playing what is... I mean, it's I I wouldn't call it an irreligious event, but it's secular in sort of its its main thrust, like most folks' Christmases nowadays, I guess. Mm. Uh, so it, it's sort of uh, there's a, it, it has a foot in each camp in in that respect, but. Um, uh, yeah, it's been good fun, sort of traversing the entire landscape, and then occasionally you'll fall across a new, you know, some aspect of Christmas that you haven't covered, and it's like then it's a it's a writer pile on at the moment because, of course, I, for the last few years I've hosted with Geraldine Quinn, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and there are other songwriters in the band as well, so everyone can fall on it like a lamb, cho- you know, a wolf <laughs> on a lamb chopper. There's a new Christmas idea. <laughs> Uh, it's interesting. With, uh, there are so many carols and, uh, I suppose, even hymns that feel like they've been around forever. But being a scholar of music, I suppose you've dug into the origins of them. You'd like to think I have. <laughs> <laughs> More I just go, oh, no, I like singing this one. But some of them are such um, indelible tunes, the, the, the old carols. Uh, I was doing a, a carols rehearsal for another event last night and we were singing um, 
uh, Silent Night, which I know Paul Kelly and Alice Keith and, and co have been sort of covering in recent years. And it's just you forget how beautiful that melody is mm-hmm. to, to be singing. Sleep in heavenly peace. Sleep in heavenly peace. It's, it's just such a, a beautiful sort of... And in my experience, it, starts, it always starts too high. Yeah, that's right. Goes, oh, oh, yeah. Yes. It's oh, one, I can never it's never do it. One of those songs like What a Fool Believes that you start singing go, I'm all right with this. And then <laughs> as you get closer to the, she had a place in his life. You go, no, it's, it's, there's always danger coming. Because, of course, yes, as you've just intimated, you appear on stage at, you know, earnest, real, you know, carol events. And so I suppose dragging that kind of sentiment that we all love into an irreligious, you know, swing and bella Christmas is a, is a skill. Well, it's still, it's still a, a, a sort of a, a real and, and heartfelt mm. uh, carol event. And that's the, kind of the great thing about uh, doing songs at Christmas time and all that sort of stuff is that there is this wellspring of of songs that we all have. We all have some kind of relationship to, you know, focusing around going, Mark my footsteps, my good page, tread thou in the morning. And there are so few, okay, in, especially in an era where um, things are, you know, generally tend to be so fragmented and everyone's off doing different things, there are so few, few uh, sort of cultural sources where, so many of the population are, are dealing from the same deck. You know, mm. everyone is sort of like, oh, yeah, no, we, we can all sing this song together. We do all know this song. Mm. There must be a uh, sense of uh, when you stage an event like this and it's it's grown so popular, uh, do you feel any uh, – does anything get discarded? Uh, you know, like are there songs that you don't do anymore? That or... there, there are some that have fallen along the way. So some have, have just sort of aged out, uh, you know, as we're – um, uh, talking about even when we were talking about um, Keating the musical off air before and, mm. and just sort of saying that there are some doing songs about Gareth Evans and Cheryl Kernow it's likely <laughs> to leave folks mystified uh, and there are like there was a, a song called Ecuadorian Christmas early on in Swing and Bella Christmas which was you know it was Julian Assange locked up in London going oh I'm just dreaming of Christmas in Ecuador. How wonderful that would be! And you know, a bit dated now. Yeah, a bit dated. That's moved on. And there's a there's a few of them like that. But there are. It's now uh, getting to be uh, nice and uh, t- the way we kind of like it in the first set. It's got, kind of getting to be so that a couple of favourites do have to be left out because otherwise the set will be too long. Yeah. And do you have a lot of repeat audience members who, who yeah, come in their which is really nice. Uh, when um, tickets went on sale this year, I mean, we were really nervous about tickets this year because uh, I don't know if folks know, but it's, it's been a bit of a dodgy year in the performing arts. It's been mm. a hard year to get crowds in. So uh, originally we just put two shows on, on sale. We normally do three and we put two on sale thinking, oh, we don't know. And all the, the, the beautiful faithful came in and it was sold out in 36 hours. We Amazing. went, oh, we'd better do the third show as well. Of course. Um, and the third show is a much slower crawl, of course, <laughs> because uh, bless, blessings be to, to the faithful who did buy the tickets and now, uh, now there's just a sort of space for newcomers, which is lovely. And it's on the uh, final night too, which has tickets, which I should say is, is sort of uh, a family night for want of a better term. It, it's the night in which uh, some traditional guests return. Oh, beautiful. Because there's always special guests coming in, but uh, it's nice to have a night where... 
it becomes very Christmas tradition-y. You know, there are certain <laughs> folks who come in and sing certain songs every year and, mm. uh, and they'll be returning on that night. Oh. Do you have a favourite song that you love that Geraldine Quinn can't stand or vice versa <laughs> that you just do for each other? <laughs> no, it, it, we've been pretty... I mean, we tend to be um, sort of holding each other's feet to the flame. Well, Jerry would say I hold her feet to the flame a fair bit on this. And, uh, and it is... Uh, it, it's... Uh, it's nice that we sort of share a, that sort of commonality of, oh, we want to do this, or and if a song is drag... And I've certainly written my share of ones that sort of drag or things like that, and nowadays we just sort of punt that out the side, go, okay, we're not doing that one until, mm. we're, until we've got one that we're sort of Christmas giddy about, jumping mm. up and down and having fun. What about in the popular culture? Obviously there's favourite songs, but do you have a worst Christmas song or album, one that you, strikes you as uh, particularly memorably turgid? Mm. Gee, there are, there are a few that happen at different times and I know Sir Paul's simply having a wonderful Christmas time will often come up on any given list. But, <laughs> mm. um, but I, I don't like to dwell on that. That's no, I not know, what, I know. That's why Christmas I wanted to hear Daniel. I mean, can we... Uh, I've only heard it. Bob Dylan's is not terribly uh, <laughs> mellifluous. No. Of course not. <laughs> no. Happy Christmas time. No, I don't, I don't know Bob's actually, but uh, I can... I can, I can yeah, I, I like the sort of Bob sort of covering some of the classics. That would work for me. Absolutely. Mark my footsteps, mark his page. <laughs> Except, no, I'm doing... That's sort of Bob of the 70s, isn't it's it? Later now it's later era, like, Bob. Mark my footsteps, mark his page. A bit more Tom Waits. Yeah. Shazam and Bowling. Although now there is what, a Christmas card for a hooky, hooker in Minneapolis, a great Tom Waits song. Yes. Um, yeah, do you throw in, I mean, I know you do a lot of originals, but when you're doing, do you, do you stick to the classics or do you throw in songs that aren't typically, like, like the, you know, Johnny Mitchell's The River or that aren't actually carols? Yeah, River has come up a few times and we do it because we have special guests and we don't want to ask every special, hey, go and write a song, you know, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, we do ask... Uh, special guests who do a song in the first half if they want to do a, a contemporary Christmas, you know, song. And uh, we've had the... Uh, we, we'll do things like um, How to Make Gravy has been uh, remade as sort of a rock steady scar, you know, so... Uh, which was really fun in 2016 when Paul Kelly was one of the special guests and he had to relearn his own song. Uh, found himself under the pump trying to re- relearn it as a scar in time. Oh, what a stitch up. That's Christmas spirit. That's good. <laughs> totally. Uh, okay, well, A Swing and Bell of Christmas is on a Brunswick ballroom. Uh, it's on Tuesday, the 20th of December, sold out. Wednesday, 21st of December, sold out. Thursday, 22nd of December, not quite not sold quite out. out. Pretty available. close to sold out, but yes. not quite sold out. Uh, so. so head to bellyunion.com.au. Oh, look, I've got a Christmas song. You ready for a Christmas song? Oh, my God, oh, yes. always. Oh, that key, I think it is. Remember when we talked last Christmas? I think you made your worst mistake. You said this team would stay in business As long as there's a fast to break But I knew your days were probably numbered When Bobby married Miss Simone I said you'll never stay McCumbered 
Cause Adelaide Abbey wants to head back home now Bobby, did she even consult ya? It doesn't make much sense at all See, we got art and sport and culture And they got them pigs in Rondomore But clearly Bobby's made her mind up And clearly time is marching on On Friday week the year will wind up and so I turned to Daniel and Mom. Oh, you need to see this marriage contract and prove it with a fine tooth comb. Cause friends should not let friends get hijacked. Just cause Adelaide Abbey wants to hit back home. Gonna do a solo yet. <laughs> oh, perhaps I'm just a smidgen crabby. Oh, cause lovers should be free to roam. So Bobby gets to roam with Abby. And Adelaide Abby gets to hit back home. <laughs> Thank you so much. I hope Thank you. I hope so too. A swinging Bella Christmas on a Brunswick ballroom. Head to bellaunion.com.au and you can catch Casey tonight co-hosting Superfluity. Am I right? Yes, you can. Beautiful indeed. on 102.7. Case Oh, thank you for all that you do. A pleasure. A pleasure. We may as well say goodbye as well. We're here at Faster Time for Amy Mullins. Let's do it. Let's get out of here. Thanks to Adam Christou who looked at Pentiment for Game Changers and Elizabeth McCarthy looked at the new memoir Desire by Jesse Cole. Yes, and Amy Mullins coming up next with Uncommon Sense. Thank you, Casey. Thanks, Casey. Cheers, Casey. See you tomorrow. See you tonight. Bye. Triple R. I went out for breakfast with a friend uh, over the weekend and afterwards she wanted to go to this fete, a church fete. I can't remember the last time Mm. I went to a fete. What makes a fete? Some streamers, flags or whatever they're called. A bake sale. Bake sale. Yes, it was one of those. Um, Or tent. I mean, do you have to have a tent? Yeah. Is some kind of, yeah, yes, there was one of those. Yeah, you're picking it all up. Yeah, and this this was at a um, at a church as well. Um, I think if you've got lots of tents, because I saw a Christmas tree sale somewhere and there were lots of tents, mm. and I'm like, you're giving the impression of a fate. Right. But if I go over there there's and there's be- not the diversity of fake goods. No honey joys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that I'll be pissed off and you'll ruin my Christmas spirit. <laughs> Well, this did have a bakery. I'm not sure about the Honey Joys, but uh, it certainly pulled off that it was a fate. But on the way there, uh, my friend and I noticed that there was a there was this older lady who had just came from the fate, and she was carrying so many bags, and she was so hot, and but like she looked like she was about to collapse. Uh, and my friend said, "Are you okay?" She went, "Oh, no." <laughs> I said, "Would you Would you like a hand?" with your bags and she stopped and she just looked at us like who are you what are you doing and we thought that we were like getting in her way and we're like oh you just if you need a hand we can help you take your bags to to the car she goes well why would you do that 
We said, oh, we just, you look like you might need a little bit of help. And she said, well, oh. Anyway, at first we thought that she was pissed off at us. But then she was just so overwhelmed, she started to cry. Oh, my God. And she just said, oh, I just, like, why would you do that? That's I'm, And she, she said she was so overwhelmed and then she put her bags out. She said, yes. Yes, I would love your help. We're like, okay. How anyway, old do you think this woman was? Um, 122. Oh, quite <laughs> No, I would say she would be in her 80s, but it was a very hot day as well. Oh, and, yeah. And I felt like that yesterday. <laughs> yeah, completely. Um, so we helped her with her bags and then she was holding um, our arms and we took her to the car and she was just so grateful and she's like, God bless you girls. Girls, we're both in our 40s. I can't remember the last time someone Great. called me a girl. Right. <laughs> Absolutely loved it. Uh, so we put all the stuff in the bag and she grabbed us again and just said, oh, God bless you. Thank you so much. Anyway, we went uh, We went to the fate and Tracy, God, she's obsessed with teapots and saucers. And, and this was a church op shop fate. So these prices were the what I recall 30 years ago. Like you go in and Tracy got like you'd buy things or just um, – teacups or whatever 50 cents you know everything is just 50 cents or a dollar everything is so cheap um but she got this whole there were six teacups six saucers uh a teapot i was gonna call it a tea jug i was like what are they called <laughs> tea jugs it's a pot. <laughs> uh, anyway did they had a little tea jug <laughs> Well, she went to buy them all and then went up and then there were a couple of things missing. But but as she was carrying it up, I was helping her and there was another woman that was helping her and another man goes, I'll get you a box. You look like you need a box. She said, oh, yeah, I'd love a box. He goes, all right, I'll go and get it. Anyway, he goes off in the heat and then by the time he gets back, Tracy's decided she doesn't want it anymore. Oh, no. Tracy, <laughs> dog, why? <laughs> well, he comes back and he goes, oh, and plonks the box on the table. He's like... All right, where's your stuff? <laughs> she said, oh, sorry. No, I decided against it. <laughs> and he went, oh, <laughs> I just went and got the box. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> Letting an old man go out in the heat. And, oh, what you Also, know? what was this box made of? Steel? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Christ, it was paperweight box it was a it was a cardboard box. did he disappear to get the box yes. before you think tracy would had actually pulled the trigger on the purchase no i think she pulled it oh but then she 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 pulled out why did she change her mind oh because there was a there were two teacups missing so so it was supposed to be a set of six and everything was there except for the two she thought they were there but they weren't there and anyway so I helped put the box I love this guy though like I mean I think if I was him I would have gone oh no worries but this guy said what he was thinking he was hot (laughs) he was inconvenienced yeah. And she just was just like, yeah, no, I couldn't spare $10. Even the old lady with the bags was like, Tracy, you mole! <laughs> Didn't you see him? The bags carried it all away. <laughs> oh, when she she did buy something in the end and then they said, because um, they advertised everywhere that there was going to be FPOS. And she went to pain. She's like, oh, no, love, no FPOS. She's like, <laughs> and then the box guy comes back and said, no, 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 you can. You just have to go out of here. <laughs> Into the church, they've got an FPOS set up there. We'll give you a receipt and then you can come back and take up your purchase. Love this. So we go to leave. Uh, she gets her raffle ticket that says what's on 
her purchase. Uh, and as we're walking out, we hear, Bobby, Tracy, come here, girls. <laughs> Bloody Linny's back, right? The woman that we helped to get to the car. Uh-huh. Linny, yes. So uh, we're like, oh, what's she doing here? Anyway, she's parked her car, double parked, so she's blocking the entrance to the church. Oh. Anyway, she's calling us like, what's happening? She's like, come over here. Tracy's like, I've got to pay for my thing. Okay, so we go over to her and she's like, come with me. And then she yells out to some other guy. She's like, where are my strawberries? I left without my strawberries. He said, yes, Lynn, we were getting them, but then you'd you'd cross the road, but they're here. And she's like, where are they? Anyway, she had a big box full of strawberries. It had about 12 different punnets of strawberries. Anyway, she finally gets them and then she pulls out too and she goes, Bobby? Thank you very much. Here you go. And Tracy, thank you very much. And gave us a punnet of strawberries. I thought you meant two strawberries. (laughs) No. Two individual berries. Oh, no, no, no. She gave us a packet each. Lynn, okay. She gave gave us a packet each and said, God bless. Uh, And then we both left with our strawberries. None of us eat strawberries. You don't eat them. I don't eat them. I love strawberry flavoured things. I just don't like a strawberry. But these smelt amazing. Uh, and did you put on a show for Lynn? Of course I did. No, I said, what is this? Strawberry? Yeah, you got any Get straw- out of here. You got any strawberry nest quick? What is this? <laughs> I saw your bags. Give me the broccoli, you tired <laughs> What a stressful fate. I feel like I need to have a nice hot cuppa from a tea jug now. Oh. <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Kitchen whiz, Michael Harden's here to tenderise us with his food knowledge. Morning, Michael. Good morning. Oh, ex- that's exactly what I felt like doing when I got up this morning. <laughs> tenderise them all. Um, and we're cooking at home today. Yes. Yeah. Thought I was. Um, you know, just getting flooded with the usual end of year emails with various people trying to sell you things and everything, and something dropped into my inbox, which was um, an ad for an automatic pan stirrer. Oh, and I've seen like, this. <laughs> no and I was way. like, and this sort of thing just really feels like the fall of civilization. It's a bit wally, it's like, isn't it? It is. It, it's sort of like, you know, and seriously, if you can't stir your own pan, it might be time to have a long heart look at yourself. <laughs> well, so how does it work? I know. You just, it sits like a kind of like, you know, the um, aliens in War of the Worlds? Yeah. The Steven Spielberg one. It kind of sits in the middle of the pan and that's this thing just going. And just scrapes the bottom of your pan, I imagine. Pretty much. So, you know, sort of like, yeah, I hope you haven't got a good saucepan. So, that's like. This is while you scroll TikTok or whatever the Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Terrific. Exactly. Just get takeaway if you're at that point. I know. I know. It's sort of really, it's sort of like, you know, there is a spoon. (laughs) Which is kind of where I come from with gadgets generally it's sort of like there's so much as this useless sort of stuff it's sort of like that you think well you could just do that yourself you know those mm. you've got those all those things like you know it's an avocado slicer you know the shape of an avocado and you put the avocado in and, and you and it's like that's you can do that with a knife mm. you know, it's kind of like this is what i think yeah. you don't get a, a tool that can just do one thing yeah, exactly. And like when you think, and it's the clutter as mm. well. Like it's like I've got a reasonably small kitchen, so I always have a bit, you know, an eye on sort of reducing the amount of stuff that I've got. Mm. So everything that you want in the kitchen is kind of useful and not one purpose only. Okay. Like even something like a garlic press annoys me because I just think that they, they waste a lot of garlic, you, you lose a lot of juice, you lose a lot of flavour, and, um, and you're getting this sort of pureed sort of stuff. 
Um, whereas, you know, if you want a puree, like you can get a you can get a garlic grater, like one of the ceramic ones, usually from Asian supermarkets, that will also do your ginger, and um, that will give you sort of a puree sort of thing. But basically, again, there's a knife yes. that mm. you can you can use for that. Uh, do you keep items up top or down bottom? Um, I mean, probably, or is it a mix? Yeah, a bit of a mix. I sort of like you know, I have I have my gadget drawer, so okay. you know, it's a, and so that probably gives you an indication about how many gadgets I actually <laughs> do have. Yeah. I'm, I was going to say, I'm very surprised you've got a small kitchen. I just imagine this huge kitchen. It's very Parisian, though, it. to have a small kitchen. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, a, it? it's a very nice kitchen. Oh, I'm I sure had, it I had is. It, I had it done, had it done a, a little while back, and uh, so I've got some, some nice equipment and stuff. But it's sort of like it is. It's small. In a, you know, it's, it's a 70s flat kitchen. So yeah. it's kind of, but I think that's why I'm very conscious of space. So it's sort of like why have, you know, a strawberry hulla when you could just have a paring knife? So Yes. Right. You know, it's that, that sort of stuff. So, you How know. does that work? Like, what do you do with the strawberry? It pulls the green it pulls bit out. The green bit Are out you serious? That's so difficult to do. These will be in stockings all over Christmas. Yes. Yeah, I every know. year, undoubtedly. And this is kind of why I was thinking it's sort of like if you're going to do give people some foodie kind of presents, there's some other things you can do. Like, one of the most hilarious ones that I think that I, I sort of laughed derisively when I heard about it toast tongs. That I <laughs> no. was. I was given toast tongs, As was and I. now I am an absolute convert. It's Me sort of too, like never really? again will you have to be because, especially when you're buying different shaped <laughs> loaves of bread and everything, your bread can disappear into the toaster, yes. and then you do have to kind of, you know, either turn it off at the wall and start digging around with a knife, <laughs> which is not a great idea. Mm. You, yeah, use chopsticks, mm. and in between, in in that time, the coast the toast is rapidly cooling. Mm. So toast tongs, mine mine are bamboo. Yep. Yes. So you know they're recyclable, and they came with a little magnet so you can stick it on the side. I think we have the same one. I know, it's oh. great. So, you know, it's like things like that. So sometimes they, they're ridiculous, but other times it's kind of like they actually do, you know, revolutionise your life. Interesting. Mm. I've got a toaster that suspension is so bad or the ejector seat or whatever that the bread fl- flies off. <laughs> oh, it's too good, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I, like that's I, I don't mean to humble brag about yeah, it. Yeah, I know. Wow, well, you know, fancy. My, <laughs> my bread ejection. <laughs> All right, toast tongs are on the list. Yeah, yeah. So my other one that it's sort of like one of those ones where you think, how can this possibly work is my jar opener because it's like, you know, that that pet peeve that I think everybody has when Mm. you you cannot get the lid off. I have got like without sort of like, you know, getting into brands or anything, but this is a brand, but I have a Tupperware um, jar opener and basically all it is is a square of skillet silicon. So you can mm. sort of like flat square of silicon. You just put it over the top of the jar. I don't know how it works because it just it's like it works every time. So like just the grip. grip. Yeah, it's, it's just a, it's just a grip thing, and mm. um, and it's great. And it's also you can use it to sort of you know put things on that are hot on yes. the table and that sort of stuff. So multi purpose. Are you trying yeah. to like make me completely useless? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's it. Oh, do I've got that. This has been the broad plan for years. It's <laughs> sort of like yeah. I've been moving towards this point. Absolutely. <laughs> Start carrying around one of those silicon grips in his front pocket. <laughs> Any ladies yeah. need a jar? Yeah, you could use use it as a pocket square. So. <laughs> and then you know you sort of get into things like you know um, cheese graters, you know, which is other things. So I think, and I, I'm kind of in two minds here, but I think that you, you may need two because you've got um, my favourite. It's that that I discovered years ago that I've never gone back. Is the drum grater, which is the with the, the one with the turning handle and sort of different things. And for things like palms and cheese, it is fantastic because you just 
chop your cheese up in things, put it put it into the top, and then you just it's just a winding handle oh, thing, right. and it and it grind it grates the cheese beautifully. Parmesan cheese. It's got a larger one for things like mozzarella. Mm. Um, that you can put over the top of pizzas and everything. It's an instantaneous, really easy. You chuck it in the dishwasher. It's the best. Okay, like, yeah. So. The, the, if they're easy to clean, yeah, yes. good yeah, point. yeah, yeah. It's great. It's sort of like I'm, I. It's great. It, it was like a. It was like <laughs> yeah. I know. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, a box grater is good to have as well for things like you know if you want to grate grating things like um, nutmeg or anything like like fresh nutmeg those sort of things. It's also quite good for Parmesan and cheese, you know that, that sort of, and, and has a vegetables. you're turning it with a handle. This this is the that's the drum grater. Yeah. It's like the box grater is yeah, you square that old school mm. kind of like bench sitting one, like a four pen. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Some of them you don't yeah. use so much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you've got and then you've got your microplane on top of that. So we're all, we're on the grating section at the mm. moment. So microplanes um, are essential. Like it's like particularly if you if you if you like to cook and stuff, it's like for things like lemon zest, mm. um, for various things. It is there's nothing that beats a microplane. It's also really great with parmesan cheese as well. So it's sort of like and gives you a very fine grape very quickly. Mm. Um, it is yeah, it's one of those life changing things. I didn't have one, and then somebody gave me one, and it was like, well, how have I lived? Mm-hmm. Right, so long and thin. They, some of them are long and thin. Some of them are wider. I tend to go for the wider one, but I'm sort of like I have been eyeing off the long and thin ones as yeah. well because I feel like you know I'm a little bit attached to the to microplane <laughs> <Yeah>. these days. <laughs> okay, so we've covered grating. Yep, yep. The other one, if we're still sort of you know grating adjacent, oh okay, um, mm. veggie peelers. Oh yes. So you know it's kind of like, and I, I really don't think that there's anything that wrong with the. The traditional, you know, that plastic with a straight swivel yeah. blade yeah. on it. Speed sort of like, yeah. yeah, Australian yeah. invention. Yes, yeah, really? and they and they are a really good. They are an, an excellent vegetable, vegetable peeler. But I have gone into the Y-shaped vegetable. Peeler, oh, really? Which is, yeah, which I'm finding is actually really great because you can get a better gr- like you you get a better peel. You sort of like with the other ones, I feel like it's more sort of it, it takes a bit longer. The Y-shaped ones, you can get a really good grip. That on looks it. like a razor. Yes, exactly, mm. exactly. And uh, and they, they yeah, they've, they've got a wider blade. You can you can peel a better surface. They also, I think, you have better control about the width of the peel. I think that you can you can have sort of with less pressure, mm. you can take the peel off, so you're losing less of the actual vegetable mm. and more of the peel. Mm. Uh, can I ask? Are they? Uh, do you have any tips for? Peeling, like yeah, the techniques technique. that you're supposed to do. You were going outwards, but I go inwards. Yeah, towards I sort of. I tend myself, to. Sorry. I tend to. Yeah, I tend to go towards oh, towards myself, sort of down and out. And I kind of like the other thing is sort of like I'm peeling it straight over the um, straight over your compost bucket. As oh, well, yeah. sort That's of like efficient. you know, rather than sort of like peel it and then sort of have to double move. So mm-hmm. it's sort of like you make sure, and that's I find that the yeah, there's something about that the Y shaped peeler that just gives you greater control about that, so things aren't flying all over the place. So. <laughs> These are all analog, you know. Yeah, so do you have? How, where do you stand on digital contraptions? Or the only the only one that I'm kind of pretty happy about is a meat thermometer. Um, So I think that it's like, you know, you don't, like, I think if you're a really confident cook, you probably don't Try and keep it clean, Michael. (laughs) 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 Um, You can, um, 
you know, competent cook, you can sort of stick a, a, a skewer into the into it and kind of test the heat and all of that mm. sort of stuff. But you know, if you if you're if you're a meat if you're a person that likes to cook meat and you want to get it right and you don't want to poison your entire dinner party, then this is quite good. And there's a couple of really good like there's a new one that I saw that you know a lot of electronic gadgets I could take or leave, but this one it's um, because it's it's wireless as well, so mm. it will it comes up on your phone. And you can sort of, and it'll tell you like how cooked it is, like uh-huh. what, to what degree it is, and maybe how much more cooking it's going to need, and that sort of stuff. So I kind of feel that that is a really useful device for anybody that wants to kind of attempt to sort of start doing different sorts of roasts and mm. you know all of those sort of things. And it's kind of it'll adapt to the meat as well, so you can feed in if you if you're cooking a duck or if you're cooking. Oh my! You tell the thermometer what meat it is. Yeah, yeah. What difference does that make? Well, there's sort of certain there's certain meats like you know How like if you cook, cook you could cook a chicken oh. the same amount that you and cook it tells a, you it, it will tell you right. you know it's sort of like it will adjust it around to the to the kind of meat that that, that you're cooking at the time oh. so you know it's amazing yeah the, in terms of sort of electronic gadgets there's a lot of them that I'm just kind of you know you're looking at things like like a rice cooker oh, very yeah. very <laughs> useful if you have bench space. But okay. I don't have bench space, so I'm just I'm still trying to perfect the art of cooking rice properly. Like I know there's sort of like I've got a friend, Jess Ho, who's a great food writer and yes. everything, and she would be absolutely horrified <laughs> you at, don't know at, how to at my rice cooking technique. What? But I'm trying yeah. to get better at it. I'm sort of it's, I, I, I cook like a like a guelo. So, but we can't you know, live without it, is that right? Yeah. yeah, you know, I've just always had a rice cooker in my house just because we always had it growing up. But whenever I've got family over, everyone just, no matter what you're cooking, even if it's a roast and roast potatoes, have to have the rice cooker full of rice just because yeah. my family like to eat Are rice. Yeah. yeah, but I, I do find that it's better for bulk. Yes, I guess. yeah, yeah, yeah it's, exactly. It's just nice and easy. And yeah, so I, I love the idea of it because I'm sort of like, I like the idea of rice cookers because I am a big fan of, like making fried rice, yeah, and so you know you can make bulk of it and then put it in the fridge, and then you've got the the, the cold rice ready mm. to, to to do the next day. But it's one of those things that I'm kind of like mm, I don't I really can't justify it when I have a saucepan. Yeah, I'm the yeah. same, but I'm still you know I don't I, I'm a, I'm a semi decent cook, but just can can never I screw rice up all the time. I know. But I'm not justifying buying a rice cooker, but I reckon there'd be a lot of hacks out there for other things you can cook in it. Oh, absolutely! Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think I'm still not getting one. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. Ha- I don't have a microwave either, and I'm not, I don't. Um, I'm not. Um, I'm not anti microwave per se. Right. He says a little judgmentally, yeah. but um, yeah, but it's another one. It's another one of those things that it's kind of like I didn't grow up with one. Mm. Um, so. And when I did have one, I sort of mainly it was there to sort of defrost things. Yeah. So I've never been a microwave cooker. And also, again, with my kitchen, it's sort of like, you know, that's that's bench space that, you know, yeah. I can, you know, use for something else. I recently so. upgraded my microwave because the one I had, I didn't have one for years after I moved out and then got my parents old one that they got um, as a wedding present in 1980. I just threw it out on the weekend. Oh, <sighs> Retro, it's probably worth a fortune. Yeah, well, it's so. currently sitting in landfill with all my soft Sorry, plastics. Sorry, the hallowed item. <laughs> yes, you had to get rid of it. It started making weird popping sounds. It's leaking radiation. Still popping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lost all my leaves. Otherwise, great popcorn. It wasn't great seeing your life change preparation. So, yeah. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, the strawberry puller and the automatic stirrer, that's, they'll be found by archaeologists. Yes, when we're exactly. <laughs> Alongside the lettuce scissors. So, you know, oh, oh, wow. Uh, Michael Harden, thanks a lot. No worries. Triple R.
My mother used to like to take me shopping all the time. She'd always like to buy things for me. Do your mothers like to buy? Or well, maybe when you were younger, I don't know, older. No, yeah, yep. It's just a... Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you sound I, like you're complaining. It sounds like a dream. No, no, no. no, no. Yeah, no, I shouldn't have started that way. No, it's, it was it, lovely. And I think the thing was, um, as I was getting older, I guess, you know, when you get older, you find your own style. Uh, <laughs> and mum always liked to buy dresses that mum would wear. Mm. Oh, great. Mm. And she she would buy them and she would buy them for me and say, you know, I think this will look great on you. I remember putting one on one day. I'm like, I look exactly like you. <laughs> She's like beautiful. <laughs> <Perfect>. <laughs> what a woman. Exactly what I wanted. Um, yeah, so there would be, and at one point, I think she bought a dress for me once and I really loved it. I was like, oh, this is great. So that just triggered. She bought me, she was buying me a dress a week. I was like, oh, oh my God. okay. I, and I Teenager just, or 20, in your 20s? No, in my 20s. Yeah. 20s, like even in my 30s. But I was just like. You don't have to buy me anything, Mum. Like, just save your money. Buy something for you. Mm. But she just loved to give and she she always wanted to anyway, so she would always buy. And I said uh, at at one point, like, she was giving – she would try to give me money all the time. I was like, why don't you just buy something for yourself, Mum? You just don't buy – she just wants to give all the time. And I was like, can you just buy a dress for yourself or buy something for yourself? She said, your brothers always take the money. Why don't you just take the money? I'm like, of course they do. (laughs) They take the dresses. Um, but yeah, so it was, it was kind of at the end, I was just like, mum, can you uh, please just stop buying me the dress and then she'd get offended. You don't like the dresses? Fine. I won't buy you anything. I'm like, (laughs) so that's why I think at the start of this conversation, it it is a mind, Mm. yeah, it it was a bit of a minefield. Um, so I would make sure whenever we had family functions, I would wear something that she has given me and that would just make her so happy. Like it would just brighten up her day if I was wearing a dress. So I would wear them at home but I just wasn't wearing them outside of home. Um, I remember once she came over and asked me where one of my dresses were and I I had given some away to Savers or, you know, an old shop. Uh, And I was like, oh, um... Oh God, where is it? I must have lent it to someone because it's such a beautiful dress. Everyone is everyone for was it. yeah, it was and and she she knew. She's like, You've like I, I bought you this dress. Where is the dress? I'm just like, Mum, I'm really sorry, I just wasn't wearing it. Anyway, so I, I felt horrible, so I couldn't get rid of any dresses. By the time she passed away, I reckon I had a dozen dresses. <gasps> That I could finally throw out. Oh my god! <laughs> I was I couldn't get rid of them. They were taking up so much room. And what was it? What was it? Apart from the fact that it looked like something your mum would wear, like what was the issue with these dresses? Like they just apart from not being you, like were they? They just I just didn't. They just I didn't like, like would, them. Would anyone else have liked them? Or were they just kind of crap? My mum, my aunties, and my nan. These are all. <laughs> okay. But my friends would have been like, "Why are you wearing your mum's dress?" <laughs> Or did your nan pass away and give you all those dresses? Like, what is what's happening with and you? Why Bobby? are you wearing them all at once? <laughs> <laughs> so I just, yeah, there was. In, in, anyway, um, I, I don't have many of them now. Uh, this one time, though, this <laughs> we were shopping together, and like I said, she just she just wants to give. And I was, we were in a makeup section of this department store, and I was putting on mascara. I tr- tested this mascara, and it was the best mascara I've ever used and my lashes were so full I was like oh god this is great I had a look and this is a very long time ago and it was $50 <gasps> like I'm, I'm talking maybe 20 years ago you know 15 20 years ago and I was like oh god I'm not paying $50 for that I'm goes that's okay 
You don't have to pay. I will pay. I said, oh, no, 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 no. I refuse to spend $50. She's like, you're not spending. I am. I said, no, I, no, I, don't, I just don't want to buy it. I, I don't want you to buy it. Please save your money. We had this big thing and she was just really annoyed. She's like, but you really want it. I really want to give this to you. I was just like, no, and I walked away. Anyway, we left the store and as we were walking out into other shops, she said, I got you the mascara. I said, oh, mum, I told you not to buy it. I didn't want you to waste your money. She said, I didn't. (gasps) I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you didn't want me to buy it, so I just took it. (laughs) My mum stole the mascara. I love that. And she, (laughs) that is. She thought she was doing the right thing. I said, no, don't steal it. She said, well, what do you want me to do? You don't want me to pay for it, but you wanted it. She was reading into the technicality. She completely was. And I said, oh, she goes, okay, we'll take it back. I said, no, we can't go back there now. I'd like a return this mascara I stole. <laughs> Imagine spending the night in the clink because your daughter wanted fat lashes. <laughs> but wait, that is, I mean, I initially I would be mortified, but I, then was there a party that was like, cool, I got it? Well, when we got in the bloody car park and zoomed out of there, because I, I couldn't shop anymore. She was like, well, we haven't done this. I said, no, we have to get out of here. Like, I can't stay in here. Mum, we're on the run. Yes, we're on the bloody run. So, so we got out of there, and I mean, and Look, was the I, it, it was it was fantastic, and I never. It, How come it was you amazing. didn't accept it at the time? Oh, I just thought it was too much. I just did, yeah. I just didn't like Mum spending money on me because she just never bought anything for herself. Yeah, but and I, that's an ex, that's an extreme amount of money to spend on mascara twenty years ago, or even it, now. To be honest, yeah, my lashes aren't very. It was fat. yeah, it was just too much. But but I I should have just shut up like and just taken it and. Whatever that's the way else. she shows love. So that's, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, I used to get in, not in trouble. But mum used to get annoyed when I would say no, like if we'd be out and I, shopping and she would say, I'll try this on, I'll get it for you. And I was like, no, 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 I don't want you to, I don't want you, same thing. Mm. I don't want you to buy me anything. I don't really need anything. Yeah. You know, and then she's like, oh, met, you know, other other kids would, would love the opportunity. To, and I was like, you, and then I would bite back and be like, you should be pleased that I'm not a demanding teenager and I'm not asking you to buy me stuff. <laughs> you have been blessed with a child who is not materialistic. But it would be this thing where she'd kind of feel miffed, like, let me buy something. I was like, I don't want anything. Yeah. Like, save up that intention when there's something I really want. Yeah. Gee. But going, I could, yeah. Going shopping with the Sabirs and the McCumbers sounds like a real <laughs> utopia. Your mum should have bought my mum's. They should have bought each other's stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Scratch um, that itch. But I do that now too. Like, I buy Abby everything. I mean, I'm not her mother, but uh, I like... <laughs> <laughs> we can dive into that if you like. It's in the vows. <laughs> but I can't help it. I just, I, I love to do it. And she and she won't buy herself anything. She's, mm. you know, and I, think, and well. I think she looks great in those dresses too. <laughs> All 12 of them. All yeah. 12 of them. I always say that there's um, a tight ass in every relationship. Abby is the one in ours. So mm-hmm. she won't buy herself anything, so I like to buy things for her. Uh, I was having this conversation with my brothers and my older brother, he's just like, oh, yeah, it's me. I'm mm. tired us. And my younger brother, he's like, oh, yeah, it's absolutely his wife. Uh, and then Dad goes, well... No one with mum and I. We're, none of us are tight asses, and we all just started bursting out laughing. He's like, "What?" We go, "It's you." Yeah. <laughs> oh, what is? Does Abby like react? I mean, does she? Does she know now? So she's like, "God, if only I could get that dress." <laughs> Maybe she's you playing me. Yeah. I just go get it. No, no, I couldn't. Couldn't and then possibly I, indulge. She is. She's absolutely playing me. I'm the bloody fool here now. And now she's going to take it all the way out to Adelaide. <laughs> 
<laughs> Your lashes look great, by the way. Can I just, like... Triple R. Don Watson is an author, speechwriter and screenwriter whose best-selling titles include Recollections of a Bleeding Heart, A Portrait of Paul Keating PM, Death Sentence and The Bush, which won Indie Book of the Year and the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award. His latest is The Passion of Private White, which delves into his 50-year friendship with and the work of intensely driven anthropologist Dr Neville White, who spent half his life at a remote Aboriginal settlement in northeast Arnhem Land. And to tell us about it, the acclaimed essayist and lifelong bullshit detector joins us now. Don, welcome back to Breakfast. Thank you for that introduction. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Uh, a lot of people might struggle to get their friends to read their PhD thesis, but for Neville, you actually did. Yeah, I did, actually. I didn't understand a word of it. <laughs> <laughs> Not the first time, at least. I had to explain a lot of it. Um, I'm no good at genetics, which is where he began his academic career, and I'm no good at anthropology, I found, either. But it is... The, the kinship system of the Jungwald that he went to study is incredibly complex, so I forgive myself up to a point. Um, I think one anthropologist, Les Hyatt, said somewhere um, calculus was understood in northeast Arnhem Land by these hunter-gatherers because he needed calculus t- to come up with a scheme like this. So it took a long while. I was, I was pleased to see that it took him a long while to understand it too. But, and if you ask me to explain it now, please don't. No. <laughs> Um, but I, re- I remember, I mean, I got him to, when he'd only been up there a few years, I got him to talk to my students when I was still lecturing. And uh, then I think it became clear, nothing else was learned except two things. I think one, that scholarly pursuits didn't have to be pursued by sort of effete intellectuals, um, that he was Harrison Ford before Harrison Ford. And uh, the other was that hunter-gatherer societies are not simple. Um, They operate with a a level of sophistication which is quite staggering, but it exists outside our own understanding of the cosmos. Uh, And that's what's, I think, incredibly um, interesting about it, endlessly interesting. Mm. Did I I answer your question? Did he know he was interesting? Yeah, I think he was always fascinated. He said to me not so long ago, you know, that every day up there it was it was hard because you know it's hard country and incredibly hot and uh, tough. And for the first few years before he understood the language, there's a great sense of loneliness and alienation. I mean, all the anthropologists talk about it. But I think he said, you know, it is quite something to have a, an entire human world open up before your eyes as you understand a little bit more every day. And um, and he watched uh, old men and women die and the new ones come on and children born and grow up. and So he saw generations pass um, and a way of life as well. And his great effort was to try and keep the traditional way of life going and the language alive. But, and this was the harder part, to sort of negotiate a path for the younger people into, if they wanted, um, profitable, in every sense, roles in European society. Mm. When did his anthropology maybe turn into advocacy? Well, he, it may be that the passing of time condenses these moments, but he, 
he remembers it as a moment when the uh, man who lived next, who, who was in the camp adjacent to his, a man called Milliwadu, uh, he had terrible teeth. They all, in the time that he was there, in the 20, first 20 years, their teeth, as they got more and more store-bought food, their dental health became appalling and it affects, as we know, the rest of one's health. Uh, and he he knew that he was determined as an anthropologist, as the classics say, you know, you're a participant observer and you, your reading of what's going on around you and the notes you're taking are all dispassionate and you don't get involved. So as far as possible, he observed that rule. And then one morning he came out and Milliwadu's wife, Judy, was sitting on top of him with a hardened stick prodding at his gum and naturally he asked what exactly she was doing and she said he's got a grub in his mouth, I've got to get it out. And uh, he cracked at that point and he had antibiotics which he kept for his own use and he gave them to Milliwadu and he was very rapidly cured. And really from that moment he thought, well, this is nonsense. You know, I know these people too well, they've become very close. I've I've got to do what I can to build this community and make it as strong as possible. Mm. So he entered into a sort of deal, um, the symbol of which was a power bag, a, a bati that they gave him containing various powerful objects. And the, the terms of the deal were really that he would, they would continue to give him all their knowledge and he would do his best to make Doinji, the name of the community, um, as strong as possible, and he would negotiate their own battles with the mining companies, for instance, which, who were always pressing on them, um, and with the town of Gupwiak, the nearest town, which is about an hour and three quarters away, um, with the store and with the authorities there, and he would do his best with the education department and so on. So from about the late 90s, he he raised a lot of money in Melbourne, uh, from Melbourne Rotary, found there two very terrific men who became his sort of stalwart supporters for years. And then he began bringing his old platoon, because he was a Vietnam veteran, and they were in as much psychological trouble as he was at that stage. And they started going to Doinji every year for a couple of months and doing all the things that um, bureaucracies, contractors and others failed miserably to do. Built houses, did the plumbing, um, taught the young men trade skills um, and did it all willingly. Did as much in a, morning, in a morning as the entire Commonwealth of Australia had failed to do in 20 years. Mm. Um, and did it for a hundredth of the price. Mm. You mentioned people were flying in and flying out and not even offering to bring anything from where they'd come from. Yes, it, was sort of, it gave me the perfect definition of a bureaucrat, even if it's a bit long-winded. You know, that of you, any of the four of us here, were one of us a long way away and we were going to see them. We would ring first, probably, and <laughs> say, can we bring you something? We might even do it without asking, you know, we just... But a bureaucrat never does that. So it actually removes the most basic human instinct, 
which is to pay attention to someone else's needs. And they don't do it. Mm. So they would arrive. I wonder, the last time I was there was 2019, before, just before COVID. And um, uh, about four planes landed on their little airstrip, all with different intentions, all marched right through the camp, set up. No one brought a thing. The teacher would fly and bring nothing. And they always would, they needed something, a spare part, you know, maybe some flour, um, cigarettes, anything. And maybe bring someone else or a message, you know, mm. but they never did. Mm. And it was, it, it was farcical. There were times up there when I thought the nearest equivalent is probably the Soviet Union for, you know, just bizarre inefficiency. Or Kafka. Yeah. Mm. You know, but he's such a cliche, poor old friend. <laughs> <laughs> For a reason. Uh, is there a, what, what is the degree of difficulty in a book like this? I mean, it's a 50-year friendship. You've been working on it for over a decade. There are extraordinary asides into, uh, you know, the Vietnam experience. And is this the most – how does this compare in effort for you to all of your other works? Easily the most difficult. Mm. Um, I, I don't know, maybe I say that every time, but no, it was terribly hard um, for a number of reasons. Partly, you know, I got stalled on trying to understand the genetics for so long and genetic diversity, which is what, was what he was interested in, which is a fancy saying, way of saying his lifelong interest for, uh, as a teenager and why human beings are different and how you explain to what extent that's, a bio, that's biologically determined um, and to what extent it's um, determined by environment or culture and so on. Um, that was hard. The anthropology was hard. But the hardest part, in a way, was to sort of negotiate a path. Remember, I, I did write a book about another friend of mine mm, that yeah. went rather badly in the end. Um, Somebody asked me the other night, why would you take on another? Do you just like getting rid of friends? <laughs> um, but I didn't, want to, I didn't want to lose Neville. Um, he's, he is a marvellous, absolutely marvellous bloke, but he's, he has PTSD and he's very intense. And I was worried not so much about... Um, saying something about him that might be offensive to him as saying something that might excite a kind of derangement because um, he, he stresses about things intensely. So the last three weeks trying to negotiate a path to the end of this book was very difficult. Mm. Fortunately, his partner was kind enough to read it carefully and give him selected highlights, as it were, <laughs> that he... That he <laughs> Uh, that he, she thought wouldn't send him into a spasm. Well, you lived with him and said that what you would await, well, you, the intellectual curiosity, unfailing solicitude, solicitude and generosity and the threat of sudden unprovoked assault. Yes, that's how he always was when I first <laughs> met him. We were at La Trobe together and he, you know, in the early days, so you could see people coming in those days at La Trobe because there were only about 300 of us. But seeing Neville, your body would always tense, you know, you'd, be ready for the two-fingered jab in the solar plexus <laughs> or a punch on the arm. It was a bit like school, you know. And um, he, he had that about him. But he's, he was always concerned. 
about how people were and uh, if he liked you. And he was always um, intellectually curious mm. in a, in a, and determined to succeed intellectually where most of us were just having a good time in those days. So it was a, it was a strange mix. But then he'd been through what we had only the vaguest idea about. We'd only read in you know, the Red Badge of Courage or something. He'd actually lived through it. And only a few months before. Because um, in Vietnam he was... He was a reluctant conscript. He was conscripted and didn't uh, believe in the war, but did the 18 months training. And when asked, when the, the group was asked if anyone objected to going to Vietnam, he said he did. And um, stood aside. They put him in a hospital because they said, you know, you've got a diploma in textile chemistry, you can be a medic. Mm. And after three weeks there, <clears throat> his moral agony, I think, where he, he thought he, that he'd made the right moral decision in not going to a war he didn't believe in, um, he thought, well, what if the men I've trained with and, and army training does form very strong bonds, you're, you're made, made anew, really, into a kind of part of an organism, if one of these men is wounded or killed or whatever happens, how will I feel mm. when I stepped aside? And I think he decided in the end that friendship was a moral position and had moral obligations and that he had to observe those. There are, um, you know, this spans 50 years, uh, this book, or perhaps, well, more. Uh, what do you, what changes have you plotted from say, 1968, when this friendship began, to now in contemporary politics? Do you, do you love observing it or you just can't help but observe it or you were a player and therefore f feel like you have a vested interest in following it? Or can you speak to that at all? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, um, I'm liking it more now than I did a year ago. Um, and I suppose there are various times... Sometimes I feel like I don't want to look at it at all for my own sanity and um, uh, just basic equilibrium. Um, I, I, these now, for instance, feel like good days, um, at least in this country, bad everywhere else. It's like, but you know, what sense can you make of the fact that we won in, you know, Keong fell, but Ukraine didn't? Mm -hmm. um, that's uh, it gives you that that's about what it amounts to in a way you know, that when it's good here it's not necessarily good per se um, mm. a lot of the time I, I, these days I feel like the world's never been so dangerous I think that's probably objectively true even though we grew up in the Cold War and the, as kids we particularly in the 1960s, you know, you felt there was always some sort of threat of extinction. But maybe there's always a threat of extinction, I don't know. Um, depends how um, cosmological you want to get. But I, I, I actually don't 
I'm addicted to politics without enjoying it, really. <laughs> Terrific. Um, I would love to get rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> Did he say that on um, on the night of the federal election you opted to watch a movie but the only reason you kept track of the election is because you couldn't find anything good to view? <laughs> That's exactly right. I was with my little brother up in um, northeastern Victoria and we thought, oh, we'll watch SBS. There must be a world movie on, but it was just rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> so we watched the election. I didn't think either side could win. <laughs> um, so a hung parliament seemed the most likely. And you hope, well, you know which way I hoped, but it was rather amazing that night. And, and it did remind you that there was, that democracies, for all their failings, do, do provide wonderful moments. Um, it just, it's not even an ideological consideration, but I think people just get sick of governments. And I think, There'll be all this analysis, Labor Party's done its analysis, the Liberal Party's done its analysis. But in the end, it boils down to the fact that a large part of the population was just sick of the government that had been there. You know, you might have, it might have been an intense dislike of Morrison or, or concerns about corruption or policy or whatever, but it, people just get sick of the same. Is that inevitable? I think it is. Mm. You know... I mean, Menzies went on for a very long while, but mainly because the Labor Party was split in two, it had no opposition. Um, the, but that's rare. I always thought in '96, when Keating lost, they would have knocked him off in '93. But he had John Hewson, who was sort of gone so far to the right that people thought he might be crazy. Mm. John Hewson's now a socialist, of course, but but um, <laughs> back then he wasn't. Um, I don't think Labor could have won in 93 with anyone else but John Hewson. I think Alexander Downer might have even won. But they didn't put the axe out in the woodshed, they just left it at the back door and waited <laughs> for the next time. And I think the same thing happened here, you know, that they, they wanted to get rid of them in 2019, but they couldn't buy. There were a couple of, you know, if Labor had dropped two policy positions mm. out of the 27 they went to the other, they would have won. They're a bit doubtful about Bill too. Mm. But the axe was still there waiting for the next time. Does the same philosophy apply then to state politics? We've just had a state election here that was... Well, again, I think, you know, that I don't think it was, you know, a love affair with Dan that caused him to win. But we didn't dislike him anywhere near as much as people interstate thought. Mm. I mean, I was happened to be travelling before the election and everyone was saying, you're not going to vote for... They're not going to vote for Andrew. They think he's a monster. He's sort of Joseph Stalin, they think. If you read certain papers, that's what you'd... you'd Well, you would if you read The Sun, yeah. Um, But I suppose that's the thing now. You you know, it's now sort of optional whether you read about it or not. I mean, the age no longer has a position on anything. You just sort of... You can just, like, staring at a wall. (laughs) Um, The Sun has got ridiculous. It used to be a good sort of people's, people's daily, you know. It wasn't such a terrible... There's a typical tabloid paper, but it had some kind of honour about it. But it's now rubbish. Um, the Guardian, if you're on the left, is so predictable. It's sort of like the way you expect the world to be. And it never has any news that gives you a little bit of heart. Mm-hmm. So I don't read any of them. Well, that's what I was wondering. What's, what's the answer? Do you see a, a, any kind of bright future or is this just going to keep going in that direction? I don't know. I mean... It, it, it really means that you scroll down the ABC website and choose the bits that, you know, you think aren't going to make you depressed. <laughs> um, and then, you know, follow the news, you know, follow the 
the path to something more intense. I read mainly overseas news more than Australian news, mm. although it's got a bit interesting now. Um, I think this is probably quite a good government. It, it's, I think they've proved themselves surprisingly competent. It's very, I think it's really encouraging that there are such a number of women in the cabinet and performing exceptionally well. I was one, I know there's now almost a cult of elbow, but I'm afraid I thought for two years I wished to God that they'd put Tanya Plibersek or, or Penny had dropped down to the lower house or something, you know. So I thought a woman would have just walked away with the election. Mm. I'm sure that's still true, but elbow at least got there. So all those signs are encouraging just when you thought the whole social project in Australia was over. Mm. Do you still get tapped on the shoulder for advice or wisdom or uh, only no, by editors? They cross to the other side of the street. <laughs> <laughs> no, once you're finished, you're finished. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know whether I could write a speech for Elba. I just don't know whether it would work. Um, and besides, I basically decided that any speeches I write these days, I'll give myself. Um, I don't do much of that. Um, Why wouldn't it work? Because I you're... think the whole game has changed dramatically in the, in the last twenty five years. See, we we didn't have the internet. It seems only a few weeks ago that I walked out of Parliament House, but there were emails, but I didn't know there were. So someone came round when I left and took all these things out of my computer, and I stared at them and thought. I said, what are they? And they said, they're emails. <laughs> there were thousands of them that the department had been sending you, which goes to show how important their advice is. <laughs> um, over, what, over how long a period have you been not reading these emails? I mean, it must have been 18 months or so. <laughs> um, no, uh, no, no one was using it. Um, someone came to us in 1990, just after we won 1993, to demonstrate the internet to us. It was like someone bringing a steam train or something to George the Third, um, and we sort of looked at it and walked away, thinking, "Well, good idea, but it won't work." <laughs> and it, it was phenomenal how stupid we were about this. <laughs> but now, you see, all we had to do then was watch a fax machine to see what was coming through and listen to the radio. Now they just have to, they're swamped by so much to deal with, and I think it's meant that all those sort of those sort of management types who were beginning to infiltrate offices and say, you've got to do this, mate, listen to the polling, do this, mate, do this, you know, watch the polling and so on. They now, they've spread, you know, they're everywhere and I think there's so much media to manage. It's not a case of sending someone upstairs at night to give Lowry Oaks a story or two or three other leaders of the gallery that you, would, you felt you had to deal with and the, and the others would follow. And it was a pendulum, you know, that the, the gallery had turned against you and you knew it had come back. Or when it was with you, you knew it was going to come and knock you over. It's completely different now. Mm. It's a, a different game. And, and the style of politics has changed, you know. I, I mean, the bonking ban. <laughs> you mentioned Passed. that. What the <laughs> hell was that? <laughs> <laughs> and all the sort of, you know... You know, sex, drugs and rock and roll that apparently goes on in the parliament. I don't remember that. 
Yeah. <laughs> it was in those emails you didn't read. <laughs> They're inviting you. Damn it. That's what they <laughs> they, yeah, they invited me up to the chapel. <laughs> <laughs> Is there something you think about the permanence of things now because of the internet? Things live forever a lot more than they used to that that might scare politicians into being more frank or to not being as frank as they could? Yeah, I think it's more likely to be the second mm. one. I don't know. I, I still think that that's true. I think I still think that politics jump at sh- politicians jump at shadows more than they need. They de- they need to be calculating, and they can't always give an answer to a question because they simply don't know the answer. But I think, as a general rule, it's not a bad idea in politics to simply say I don't know the answer. I might be able to tell you next week. I might never be able to tell you, but I don't know the answer. Mm. I think I think people still react to something which is fairly elusive, called genuineness. And I think, for instance, it, and it tends to show up in these independent candidates. I thought it showed up with Tony Windsor in the Gillard government back then, where suddenly this guy who we'd never have noticed mm. just sounds like a, a sensible, thoughtful human being and a, a good politician when you need good politicians in politics. I think there are things... Like, I mean, I, I drove around northeastern Victoria at the time of the election and that electorate up there, Indi, used to be a deeply conservative country party place, really conservative. But Cathy McGowan and now Helen Haynes have... It's, it's, it's extraordinary. It's like a change in the whole landscape that you see these pictures up of this really intelligent... You can tell she's a sort of decent woman who's working on the Integrity Commission having a real influence in the parliament out of a place like Indi changes your whole perspective and you think, multiply that a few times and you get a real thinking social democracy of different views. You know, she's not an ideologue, but she was probably more conservative than anybody in this room, but she's also smart and fits the electorate and it's now basically a safe, independent seat with influence. That's, I think, the most encouraging thing in the politics of this country now. Why devote yourself to a, the pursuit of politics or obsess over the minutiae of it if so much of it comes down to I'm sick of this or this person makes me feel good? I think it, that's, that's a very good point, but I think it's just the, the reality of, of, a, of a democratic society that most people don't get interested until late in the electoral cycle and, then they make, and it often is on just a feeling... And yet, they did, obviously, I mean, in the, in the, even in the days of Keating and Hawke, the swinging vote was about 7 or 8% max. Um, now it can be vastly more than that. So people, to contradict myself, <laughs> people actually do seem to think about this. They've always voted with their pockets, which is perfectly sensible. Um, but it's... Um, I think I, st- I still think a whole lot of the electorate just vote on a, on a general sense of things, which is not a bad thing. It's an instinctual thing. Um, and at the moment, it's so it's a, it, it is very unusual. I mean, Labor forms government in in its own right with thirty two percent of the vote. That's was unimaginable even 20 years ago that it, you could do that. Um, 
and all conservative. I mean, in the last election, the the west of Melbourne went anti-Labour and the east went red, as it were. And um, so, th if you live long enough, yeah. <laughs> you can see Kyong fall. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if the Liberal Party were to get Don Watson and say, can you help us out here on the down low because we're struggling and we don't know who we are, what do you think would make a strong opposition? Oh, I thought you were going to say what my advice would be. Oh, well, both. My advice would be pack your bags. Yes. <laughs> <You'd> <laughs> Empty be, the office. You'd sabotage it from within, yeah. Check out the leasing market. No, I, I mean, I, th I don't think that's true. I mean, they, you can never underestimate the capacity of one party or another falling in a hole, even from a position as strong as Labor seems to be at the moment. Mm. But I do, they have got... Uh, they're willfully stupid over the, la the last 10 or 12 years, and I honestly think it was the worst 10 years of government the country's had. I mean, you had Tony Abbott, my God... Um, and that was always going to be the case. How they ever thought, anyone ever thought he'd make a Prime Minister, I don't know. What, what's 15 the years out, you could have said the bloke's not going to... He's mad. What's the opportunity cost of those 10 years? Well, that's, what, that's the incalculable part, really. That's just 10 years of wasted opportunity for this country. I mean, and then you have Malcolm in the middle, as it were, um, who tried to be a sort of socially progressive, economically... That, that doesn't work anymore. You can't... The Liberal Party won't... They, they hated him from the start. Someone told me early on they'll never put Malcolm in because they think he's, he's their Kevin Rudd. Well, eventually they had to put him in. Mm. And they were... The axes were out from the day... from day one. So Malcolm never got anything done, apart from the same-sex marriage thing, which he got through by... Really, that was just a force of circumstance, you know, as the referendum revealed, mm. um, which was an extraordinary thing too. Imagine that in even contemplating that in the 1980s. Um, and, the, and the last crew were just rat bags. Um, and there was, I think there was a terrible feeling that the country was sort of standing still. The other good thing out of that election is it, is it, it actually demonstrated once and, for all, once and for all what a complete waste of time the culture wars are, how they not only debilitate debate, but they, they paralyse the social project. Nothing happens while, you're, while politics is played in that way. Um, and I think the sense of... any sense of momentum and progress we have now really comes from the culture wars being basically put to one side. Mm. It, suddenly we're talking about policy a bit. Maybe this would work better, maybe this would help people and so on, which just wasn't there before. No. Uh, well, now that you've got all that off your chest, I wonder what your next project <laughs> is. Are you going to do TV recaps of The Bachelor or something? <laughs> or? <laughs> you get a column in the sun if you like. <laughs> About it. I thought Sky News might be a guy. Yeah, I reckon. <laughs> Are you Sitting next to Peter. Chloe Hooper was in and said uh, one of your TV recommendations was Slow Horses, which we watched and loved. Did you have anything else for our oh, listeners? I'm glad you mentioned that Chloe mentioned that because I I would have completely forgotten that. But it's a terrific show. No, the, at the moment it's the Bureau. That is terrifying. I, can't, I don't know that I can stand much more. Um, 
No, the next project is the um, the shortest history of the United States. Sounds like a nice small thing to do. <laughs> it is, very small. <laughs> it's a series that um, Schwartz Media do that's been the shortest history of Europe and the Soviet Union and China and so on. I'm doing the US. Shouldn't take long. <laughs> uh, well, before that comes out, if you want to spend more time with Don Watson, can we recommend The Passion of Private White, which is his new work out via Scrivener? Yep. Don Watson, thank you very much for having us. Thanks very well, much for having me. <laughs> That's what I meant. Triple R. Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasts, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or the Triple R website. <laughs>